in the uh, church that I grew up in, any time that a person would get baptized, uh, a guy in the church by the name of Harold Heilman would uh, make a cross uh, for that person. And the way he did that was he took four common nails, uh, put them together, and then welded them in the middle uh, so that you would have a cross. And I think uh, we have a picture of uh, what that would kind of look like. Now, we never really called him Harold uh, because he was such a uh, wonderful kind of uh, godly man that he just kind of adopted almost every kid in the church as a grandchild. And so we all uh, became uh, his grandkids and we would call him uh, Grandpa Heilman. And then I'll never forget when I eventually uh, got baptized, and I think we have a picture of it here, he actually made uh, a cross, and uh, I did it uh, in the first celebration, it worked out okay, um, and so he made this cross for me, and uh, it's been something that uh, I don't wear all the time, but it's something that I treasure and I value because I remember uh, the significance of what uh, it meant to have uh, a cross that was made for me. Now today we're uh, concluding kind of our series, uh, It's Okay to Not Be Okay, and we live in a not okay world. And there is a lot of not okayedness uh, within, within each one of us. And uh, the whole series, though, has been pointing to what we're going to talk about today, and that is the cross. And, you know, for some people, when they think of the cross, uh, they simply think of a symbol, some jewelry that maybe they wear. And for me, for much of my life, that's kind of the way that I kind of saw the cross, more as, as just a symbol. Other people will see the cross as a formula. Other people will see it as a theory. But what I want to talk about today is the fact that the cross is uh, none of those things, but the cross actually is a story. And I want to talk about uh, the story of the cross. Now, to understand this story, you have to uh, look way back uh, in history, long before Jesus ever kind of came on the scene, in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible. And one of the things that you'll notice uh, in the Old Testament is that animals were treated badly. Uh, how many of you who've ever read the Old Testament, how many of you ever noticed that animals get bad treatment? Okay, anybody? You're not reading the Old Testament, I can tell. Okay, so if you read, if you read it, what you would notice is that um, it was bad, and uh, things happened to them. They were uh, actually uh, killed and sacrificed. They were slaughtered. Their blood would be poured out onto an altar and sprinkled on furniture, and other times their fat would be burned as well. And so, you know, PETA would not be very happy with those people in the Old Testament, uh, just would not like that. The people for ethical treatment of animals would not happen. And today, if we had animal sacrifices that were uh, going on, we would look at that and we would go, you know, like, what's up with that? Because in 2019, it just doesn't make much sense at all. However, if you're going to understand the story of the cross, the reality is you have to understand this part of sacrifice. And I need you all 
kind of put your thinking caps on because we're going to talk about this for the first half and uh, I hope you'll find it uh, challenging for you. Now, this whole concept begins in the Old Testament where Moses uh, actually received some words from God and he tells people how animal sacrifices are to be offered. But people actually were sacrificing animals long before Moses, and we see that in Genesis, the very first book of the Bible. Uh, there were uh, Cain and Abel, uh, who were the first two children on planet Earth. They sacrificed, and Abraham did, and so did Jacob. And so in the very first book of the Bible, we see that animal sacrifice was going on. And people outside of Israel were sacrificing animals as well. In, ancient, in the ancient world, animal sacrifice was a part of the culture. So the simple point I want to make this morning is that Israel did not invent the concept of animal sacrifice, sacrificing something to the heavens. Animal sacrifice was actually a practice that was all over the ancient world during this time. All people participated in this particular act. But if we think about it today, it looks very, very weird in 2019 to think about sacrificing animals. I mean, some of you have dogs, cats, other animals that are precious to you. You like them better than people, don't you? Uh-huh, I know. And uh, the, the thing that happens often is when we think about this in the Old Testament, we think, well, they were just dumber than we were. I mean, they just weren't quite as smart, and they don't know the things that we know today. Again, to understand the story of the cross, folks, you have to understand the concept of sacrifice that was going on in the world of Israel during this time. Now, people in the ancient world kind of had a couple different thoughts. Uh, here's the uh, first one here. People in the ancient world believed we need help. That's your first fill-in or you can do it on the app as well. But they kind of had this sense that we need help, that we are not masters of our universe, that we are not in control of anything. I mean, uh, they were not as intelligent and as smart as you and I are sitting here today. I mean, the reality is for you and I, we have technology and we realize that we are in control. We are the masters of our own universe, that we run the ship. But in the ancient world, folks, people didn't know this. They were dumb. And they thought there was like this mystery to life. They didn't know that you could get meat and cellophane at Walmart. Okay? Like they didn't know you could go do that. They, they thought you had to like kill things and there had to be blood and there had to be pain. I mean, there was birth and there was death. And, and birth wasn't the nice little thing that we see today where we have big birthing centers and medical doctors and they can take away the pain. But the reality is, in the ancient world, birth was bloody and it was filled with pain. Before our uh, oldest daughter, Jordan, was born, uh, my wife Jennifer and I decided that we would actually go ahead and uh, take some premarital, or pre, uh, we did that first before we had the kids. Uh, so we had premarital, and then uh, 13 years later, uh, we had prenatal classes. That's what I wanted to say. And so we had uh, prenatal classes, 
and we wanted to learn exactly, you know, what was going to happen in the delivery room, uh, how uh, things were going to uh, take place, what to expect. And so they taught us these different breathing techniques and how I was to be a good coach for her and how to count and, you know, one, two, three, you know, and help the whole thing. And so uh, we, we had all of this fun doing this. And they didn't want us to say the word pain. They told all the husbands, all the boyfriends, everybody who was a father to the child that was coming, that we don't want you to use the word pain, but when, you know, things aren't going so well, we want you to use the word discomfort. Um, that you might be experiencing, dear, a little discomfort. Okay, women do not storm the stage, okay? Um, but that's what, that's what they taught us. You see, in our world, folks, we don't like pain. Now, Jen uh, went through labor for 13 hours. I've talked about how uh, before that it was a difficult kind of delivery, and we're just so grateful that uh, Jordan kind of uh, was able to make it through. But the thing that was going on that created all the issue was that she actually had twisted around 180 degrees, and the hardest part of her head was on my wife's spine on the most tender part. They call this, in the medical world, the baby was sunny side up, okay? If, if you're carrying a child right now, I'm sorry, but the only thing I can tell you, it's painful, okay? And, and there's pain that comes with that. And uh, this kind of contraction would come, and my wife would be in agony, and it was just, you know, very, very difficult, and it wasn't fun at all. And whenever they would kind of check on her, it would get greater pain, and uh, it just wasn't that awesome. But I knew I was not to use the words, dilate about six centimeters, and she comes and she tells me, she goes, do you think I should have an epidural? And she's a doctor, and there's these medical people all around. Why are they asking me, the person who has no wisdom, whatsoever so this is what i said are you experiencing some discomfort and then my wife shared some things that a pastor's wife should never share and there were words that came out of her mouth that i didn't realize she even knew and pretty soon she was experiencing something that she wanted me to know it was not discomfort. It was what? Yeah, pain. So we put the epidural in, and she kind of got everything, you know, kind of calmed down. And eventually, even though it was difficult delivery, eventually the delivery went through, and all was well, and Jordan was born. Now, folks, in the ancient world, what I want you to know is that there was no epidural. There was just blood and pain and agony, and they were dealing with all of this. They realized there was pain in life, and they needed help. For example, they realized that life seems to come out of death. That when you're eating something at the table, that that thing had to be planted if it's a vegetable and it had to be harvested. It had to be destroyed in some way so that 
it could provide something for you. If there's meat involved, every single time they realize that there was blood that had to be shed. That life was lost. And that life actually comes from death this world. They actually believe that, that there was another realm beyond this world. Now again, they're not as smart as us, okay? They thought that you can see and taste and touch and feel and hear, that all of those things, that that's not all there is, that there's actually another realm. In fact, sacrifice was an important part of connecting with that realm, that if we sacrifice something here on earth, we could have a connection with those in the other realm. Now today, when we think of the word sacrifice, what we think about is losing something. Like, oh, I had to sacrifice my money. I sacrificed my time. I sacrificed my sleep. What we're talking about when we think of sacrifice is that we lose something. But in the ancient world, when they thought of sacrifice, what they thought about was to transfer To sacrifice something was to transfer it from the everyday life to the heavenly realms above. The word sacrifice actually means this, to make sacred. That there was something there that was sacred about it. That the object here on earth was now going to be available to the heavens. And so that's why a common phrase that's often used in the Old Testament, the first half of the Bible, is this concept of aroma going to heaven. That as they sacrificed the animal, the aroma actually went up to the gods. Here's a couple of scriptures that talk about this. As an what? Aroma. Boy, you're excited today, aren't you? Okay, let's try this again. As an what? Aroma, exactly, pleasing to the Lord, offer a burnt sacrifice. And you see this concept of aroma all in the Old Testament. Another place is in Leviticus. It was a burnt offering, a pleasing aroma of food presented to the Lord. When sacrifices were made, they noticed that there was this aroma thing that went to the heavens. Now, one of the reasons why I love summer so much is because we can grill. Uh, anyone else like to grill out in the summer? Yeah, everybody does. And so last night, um, I was mowing the grass, and uh, Jennifer was actually, and she did a great job, cooking hamburgers and hot dogs uh, on the grill. And as I was mowing the backyard, I started just, this aroma started coming. And I was like, I don't want to mow the grass. I want to eat. And uh, she said, no, you mow the grass. And so I finished the grass, and then later on uh, we had hot dogs and hamburgers. And everybody loves when there are these aromas that come off the grill during the summer. In the ancient world, people ate the food, and the aroma then was actually delivered up to the gods who were above them. It was available to use for them, that it was a divine kind of gift that went up to the heavens. So sacrifice, and we'll talk about this more later, 
could be thought of this concept of a great transfer. Remember, I said, we think about sacrifices lost. They thought about it as transfer. And that's what we'll talk about as we get to the cross, that it's actually a transfer that takes place. It's human. It's earthly. It's ordinary that this animal we're sacrificing. And yet, somehow, it's not. Now, again, as I said earlier, animal sacrifices were not just an Israel thing. Everybody in the ancient world did animal sacrifices. It was the entire concept of what they believed that went to the gods. People in that day actually believed that the gods actually created human beings so that we could feed them. That the gods were very, very hungry, and the way to please the gods were to actually feed them. The gods were also kind of thought of, kind of a powerful version of a human being. That they were kind of weak, and they were kind of weird, and they were always very, very needy. And so as human beings, they had to be able to provide this kind of aroma to the gods. The gods also needed a place to live. And so they're like, well, we have to build something for these gods to live. And so there would be temples. And that's why they see, whenever they do archaeological digs in the ancient Near East, what they find is tons of artifacts because everywhere you went, there was an altar or there was a temple. Gods were hungry and the people had to sacrifice things to please the gods. People would offer sacrifices of animals, and then they figured as we gave something to the gods, this aroma that went up, that then whatever people wanted, they would get. So if it was wealth or health or prosperity or fertility or something else. In the ancient world, priests not only were people who actually did rituals uh, or did religious stuff, they were the butchers of the day because there's this Tons of animals coming to them, and the temples were kind of like a restaurant. Now, uh, we kind of have uh, remnants of this around in our day, and we call it this, the golden arches. And we, we see this, and what do we do? We have these little pagans that want happy meals, right? And so you have to provide for them And that's the way it was kind of seen for the temples of that day, is that there were places of restaurants where people would bring animal sacrifices. And now things were different because God was trying to change all this thought, a thought that we need help and a thought that there is another realm, but it's really all of these gods that are there. You see, folks, the reason why meat was so valuable, if you were poor, you would never eat meat. The only time you ate meat was when you went where? To the temple. It's only there that you would have meat. Otherwise, if you were poor, you never had meat. It was a luxury to do that. And now the God of the Bible realizes that he has to help the culture know that there aren't all of these little gods all over the place And every time you sacrifice something to it, that it goes nowhere. It doesn't do anything. But he had to teach the ancient world kind of two primary truths. And here's the first truth, and it's this. 
There is one all-loving, supremely good God. You see, before the God of Israel, folks, there was no concept of a monotheistic God. One God. It was pluralistic gods. There were polytheistic gods. There were all kinds of gods as much as you could imagine. Those are just a lot of big words for saying there's gods for everything. Sun, moon, stars, uh, you know, stage, television, speaker. I mean, anything you could see or feel, they would create a god out of it. Every country, every culture has multiple tribal gods. There's altars all over the place. And in Jerusalem, in Israel, what was so strange was once the, the, the concept came of one god... Jerusalem only had how many temples? One. And why did they only have one temple? Because there's only how many gods? There's just one. And he doesn't actually need a house, but the temple was simply expressing this spiritual truth that says, God wants to live within you. If you let him, the God of the Bible actually wants to live in you. Your heart, your body, all of a sudden, your mind becomes a temple to God. A home, God's presence here on earth. It's an amazing possibility, if you think about it during this time, that God could actually be present in me. Then God had to teach the people that he didn't make us because he needed something out of us. He didn't make us because he needs us to do something for him. He made us because he has great love. He made us because he has so much love that he wanted to pour his love into his masterpiece creation, which was people. Now, Look at what Psalm 50 kind of says, because it's strange when we read it in 2019. It says this, God says, I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. In other words, he's saying, hey, I don't need any of your stuff. For every animal of the forest is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all that is in it. Do I eat the flesh? of bulls or drink the blood of goats. Now when you read this, you're like, that's weird. Like that is weird stuff. Because the truth is, folks, this passage isn't for those of us who are enlightened. It was for the people of the ancient world who realized that this was a brand new concept. This isn't for us, this was for the ancient world, where now everything looks different. See, the idea that there's only one God and He isn't needy was a foreign concept to the ancient world. All the gods were needy. Every god was needy. They were concerned more about themselves than they were about humans. And by the way, uh, you know, they had these idols that they were worshiping. But just in case you think you're smarter 
than the people of the ancient world. If you think, well, they were so dumb, that's why they did this kind of thing. The reality is, folks, that many people are still sacrificing to idols even today. It's still going on. A woman gets hooked on gambling and she ends up throwing all of her financial savings to try to win the big ticket, to win the big hand. Why? Because she's sacrificing for something that she thinks will come, but never comes. A guy goes into the office really early in the morning. He stays really late. He does this his entire career because he's climbing up this golden ladder so that everyone would recognize. And what does he do? He sacrifices relationships with his kids, maybe a wife, with his family. He does all of this on the altar of the God called success. Athletes, they take this stuff and they shoot themselves up so that they become bigger and stronger. And then it destroys their lives because they're sacrificing, though, for the God called winning. Young people will finally get to the point where they think, oh, I think I'll have a fabulous life, but maybe it's not enough. I need something more. And they will give the life away for the God of alcohol or the God of drugs. A husband gets up in the middle of the night and he sneaks away from his bed and he goes into the study and he closes the door and he turns on the computer and he gets the mouse out and he clicks on a whole bunch of porn sites and he does this week after week, month after month, year after year and he sacrifices the joy of marriage with his wife. He sacrifices sexual understanding and respect and integrity of his marriage for a thrill that will never satisfy him. You see, folks, before you're too quick to say, oh, that was back in the Old Testament, that's where they were worshiping idols and sacrificing things. Actually, folks, there might be a few idols that you and I are still sacrificing too. And this kind of leads us to the dilemma that the God of the universe has. First, he says there's only one true God. But then he goes on to say this. He teaches them, There is one great human problem. There is this gigantic human problem. Now, this problem that humans have is not out there somewhere. It's not with the gods. It's actually within us. Not okayedness is not about the circumstances that are around us. I need more money, I need better health, I need better crops. But the problem is, there's something wrong with our soul. You see, folks, this is what's true about Chris Bunch. My soul is not okay. And your soul is not okay. So God had to teach all of Israel and all of the ancient world, that there is a not okayness, a big problem in you and me. Now the psalmist realizes this as he kind of shares these words. He says, you do not delight in a sacrifice 
or I would bring it. Now that doesn't make sense to the people in the ancient world because the sacrifices made sense. Well, the gods just want our sacrifices. I don't have to be ethical. I don't have to be pure. I don't have to be respectful. I don't have to be selfless. I don't have to be good. I just have to take a sacrifice and offer it to the gods. And the psalmist says, no, 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 no. That's the problem. It's not that way with the one true God. You don't delight in the sacrifice or I would actually bring it. Isn't that true? It's easy. Like if we all just knew, hey, I'm good with God if I bring X amount of dollars every Sunday, we'd be like, sign me up. Is there something I can offer? Is there something that I can give that makes me good? You don't take pleasure in that. And the text goes on to say, you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. Now, honestly, how many of you look forward to coming to God and saying, God, there's something wrong with me. How many of you love to do that? Raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand, raise your hand. Okay, if you raise your hand, guess what? You're wrong. You're a liar. No human being wants to do that. There was a whole group in the first celebration. I go, you're a liar. They're all like, woo. Folks, we don't like to do that. No one wants to do that. We resist that. If we didn't, then we wouldn't be messed up. It offends us to think that somehow there's something in us that isn't right. We don't want to hear it because it's not good news. The best way I can kind of explain this is uh, going to a dentist. You know, when you go to a dentist, they always let you know that there's something inside your mouth that is wrong. But you don't always know what it is. And so dentists will have a tendency to make you feel embarrassed because you're sitting in that chair and they're looking in there and they're going, ooh, ugh. And I remember one time, you know, dental hygienists, I usually think they're real kind and this one was not. And the dental hygienist asked me, do you drink coffee? I was like, nope, don't drink coffee. I'm like, yes. And she said, well, do you drink pop? I said, well, I just drink one pop a day. It's kind of a big can. It gets refilled a lot. Uh, but that's, that's kind of it. And, uh, well, do you brush your teeth at least twice a day? I'm like, well, I always brush it in the morning. And then, you know, if I don't fall asleep, uh, you know, I brush. Well, you need to do that. And then she asked the question that's the most painful question when you're sitting in that chair. And you know what the question is, don't you? Do you what? Floss. Do you floss? Now, mass confession. I lie to my dentist. Do you? Raise your hand. Oh, look at all of you holy people. On inside your mouth, I don't even realize that I'm doing it. Because the problem is not out there somewhere. The problem 
is here. It's not about all of the idols that are out there. It's about me. The editors of the London Times uh, about a hundred years ago asked a question. It's kind of a really probing question for all humanity. And here's the question. What's wrong with the world? And that's the human question. We wonder that all the time. This morning, 7.22 in the morning, I get a text from a person that's in our small group who said that her mom had died. Her dad died a year ago. And when I called her and I talked to her on the phone, and we're both crying together, she goes, I don't understand why I would lose both of my parents and I'm not even 40 years old yet. And then all of a sudden, I'm thinking this question right here. God, what's wrong with the world? God, what is wrong with it? And so they asked this question a hundred years ago. And there are many people that responded to it. But there was one guy in particular, a guy by the name of G.K. Chesterton, who was a Christian writer of the time. And he had a very brief response to this question, what's wrong with the world? And here's his response. Dear sirs, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. You know what's wrong with the world, folks? Me! That's what's wrong with the world. It's not out there somewhere. It's right here. Folks, in the ancient world where Israel lived, what was wrong with the world is that the gods were needy. The gods were angry. So people decided, we'll give them something to make them happy. And so they sacrificed thousands and millions and maybe billions of animals. Because what is wrong is out there is that the gods are not happy. But in the Bible, what is wrong with the world, the Bible tells us, is not something that's out there, but it's something in here, and it's called sin. Now, a lot of times, when people hear the word sin, they have a tendency to think, oh, that means you broke a rule. And it's usually like a rule that we like. Like it might be sex or pleasure or something else, and we break this rule, and Our lives would be so much better if we just didn't have some of these rules that existed. However, folks, this is what I want you to know today. That sin is more than just breaking some kind of rule. It's something that's much deeper than that. It's when I take something that is not worthy and cannot save me, and yet I make it the ultimate thing I value. Sin says this. Sin, the definition, is when I sacrifice my life for what is not worthy. Folks, I do this every day and you do this every day. You sacrifice your life for things around that are not worthy of that kind of sacrifice. You see, folks, Sin is this brokenness inside of me that I can't even understand myself. And that I mostly don't even see. It's just deceitfulness within me. Why is it that I can be so when I could actually do something? 
Sin allows me to betray the value that I have and good. And the problem is there's this huge problem. After he kind of shared that with the world, then he sent his one and only son, Jesus, to planet Earth. That the God of the universe actually left the heavens and he came here and we could be connected to him. That God left, left heaven and came to earth. And that now he was going to be available to all of us. He walked with us. He was present with us. He was right here. And in Mark 1, this is kind of what we read about his story. Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news of God. The time has come. He's like, you don't have to wait anymore. You don't have to wait for something aroma to fill air. It's right here. You can be a part of what God's doing now. It begins with the possibility of living a life together with God, being loved by God, being cared by God, experiencing His power in your life, to be able to have His favor among you. It's possible now, He says, right here on earth. In Jesus, the great transfer finally takes place as God comes down in flesh to take on all of the sin of the world. The kingdom of God, he says, is now available to all of you, every single one, regardless of what you have said or done. One way of kind of thinking about the kingdom of God is thinking of it that it's simply where... The problem is, folks, there are a lot of little wills that we have in this world. There's a lot of kingdoms that we have. There are a lot of kind of things that are opposed to the things of God. And yet Jesus said, oh, there's going to be a lot of opposition. I don't care. I'll go anyway. And that list included some religious leaders. It included people like Herod and Pilate, Roman leaders. It included Judas. And guess who it included? Me. And you. Opposed to the things of God. Because here's the problem, folks, that you and I have. We don't always want God's will for our lives. We want our will for our lives. We don't always want God's will. We want our own will. You see, there's a battle, folks, that's going on There's God's kingdom, God's will, and then there's every other will in this auditorium, in this city, in this county, state, nation, and world. Now with human kingdoms, what typically happens is if there is a battle that's going on, if there's some opposition, they overcome it by using force. We'll overpower you. We will destroy you you. But Jesus would not do that. Jesus could not do that. Because he wants what he wants to win is not just a battle, but he wants to win your heart. He wants to win everything, not by overpowering the world, but by loving the world. 
Jesus says, hey, there's this battle going on in the world between good and evil, and I'm going to win it. He says, I'm going to win it by loving the world. I'm going to do it by being merciful to the world. So, he says some teachings like this. Jesus said, you hit me in the face. You break my nose. I will not hit you back. I will not hate you. I will give more and more love. Why? Because I'll turn the other cheek and I'll say, you're worth it. That's how much I'll love you. You ask for the shirt off my back, I'll actually give you my coat. You force me to walk one mile, I'll actually, at the end of that mile, say, would it be helpful if I carried your stuff another mile? Because I'm more than willing to do it. I'll do it for you. And I'll do it with joy because I'm going to love you no matter what. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who are despiteful towards you. Love your enemy. Folks, do you understand that when you read those words in the Bible, they're not rules, folks. They're not rules. This is a battle plan that the God of the universe has. Jesus said, I'm going to take on all the evil that's in this world and I will show them once and for all that they cannot overpower love. You see, in the Roman world, every time they crucified someone on the cross, they were thinking to themselves that this is a false messiah. This is one who cannot come down from the cross. He's a loser. He's a failure. And nobody, nobody could have ever imagined what God would do. Of how God would deal with evil, and violence, and hate. God says, whatever you do to me, whatever you do to me, it will not keep me from loving Nobody dreamed of this. And so Paul, the guy who wrote close to half of the New Testament, when he talked about the cross, he described it this way. He said, God forgave us all our sins. How many sins? All. All sins are all time. What you've committed, what you are now, and what you will do in the future for the entire world. God forgave all our sins who turned to Him, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness which stood against us and condemned us. He has not taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the power and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Because here's the truth, folks. In the ancient world, in Jesus' world, when people went to the cross, they were losers. They were false messiahs. They were people who would never be able to give power. And God says, I'm going to take the symbol of the loser and make it the biggest winner this world has ever known. You see, on the cross, that's where the powers and authority, Rome, the religious leaders, the people of that time thought there would be defeat. And he actually turned it upside down. 
Jesus like turned the world upside down. He changed the narrative of everyone of what they were listening to. It is on the cross that Jesus finally triumphs saying to them, go ahead, do whatever you need to do. Go ahead, do your worst to me. Mock me, abuse me, kill me. You cannot do anything that will keep me from loving you. And I just want to ask you today, when was the last time you actually got to the cross? I mean, when was the last time that you actually got there? When was the last time? And for some of you, this is the problem. This simply becomes a symbol for some of us. It has for me. But it's not a symbol, folks. It's a huge story. Folks, there's this battle that's going on, and Jesus has this strategy. And He blows up the concept of the world of His day. And He says, I'll go to the cross. Go ahead, do whatever you need to do. Hit me again in all of that. Do whatever you need. You can't keep me from loving you. You see, folks, when he died on the cross, he actually was defeating sin, showing the world that my love is stronger than all of that. That's why Paul writes these amazing words when he says this. None of the powers of this world have known this wisdom. If they had, they would never have crucified the Lord of glory. Because when they crucified Him, He won. Love won. And that message has been powerful to billions and billions of people today. It had to be at the cross. It had to be at the shedding of the blood because forgiveness always means that someone has to take a cost of suffering. It's for the one who forgives. So I just want to ask you this morning, when was the last time you spent some moments at the cross? When you simply came to the cross and you bowed and you said, God, I thank you, I praise you for what you did on the cross for my life. Where you say that, God, I know you went to the cross because you'll love me no matter what. It was not cheap. It cost him greatly. And yet love wins at the cross. And maybe today it's not an animal sacrifice. He doesn't want that. He doesn't want your sacrifice. He actually wants your life to be a living sacrifice. That I sacrifice my life for yours. I want your will, not mine. I'm living for you. The way that we decided to
kind of used this today was for you to get to the cross by being able to see exactly what happened to the Lord of the universe because of your sin and because of mine. And we're going to celebrate something today called communion. And maybe you've never done this before, but communion is a time in which we sit at the table with God and we remember what Christ did on the cross for us. It's where we sit down and we finally realize, God, you're enough. God, you're more than enough. When push comes to shove, when you could have done something different, you said, no, 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 no. My love will be enough for you. You're worth it. So today I simply want to give you a moment to be alone with God. We're going to turn down the lights for you to have a chance where you can confess to the God of the universe whatever sin you might have. And after we've given some time of confession, then I'll kind of close this in prayer. If if you've chosen Jesus Christ as Lord of your life, You're invited to any of the four tables that are here or the two tables that are up there. You'll simply tear off a piece of the bread. You'll dip it into the juice and take and eat. But it's not just symbolic, folks. It's a story that God's body was broken. His blood was shed because of His great love for each one of you. And if you would have been the only person on planet Earth, so I'd like you to just take a moment, and then we'll come to the table, and Caleb will lead us in the song. So take a moment right now, just between you and God. What is the sin in your life? What is that that is not worthy, that cannot save you, you've been giving allegiance What is to God.
power of the cross has touched so many lives. The greatest intensity this world has ever known is when Jesus went to the cross and turned the world upside down and loved one. And our only grateful response to that amazing gift that you gave to us, God, is to say, God, here at the cross, I offer my life as a living sacrifice. And right now, I simply want to give a chance to anyone who may be here for the first time or maybe you've been connecting and you're like, wow, that's what it means that you transferred all my sin onto his shoulders so that I could be set free. Yeah, And so today, if you're ready to say, God, I want Jesus to be the forgiver and leader of my life. I need his love. I need his grace. I need the assurance of heaven that I'll be with him. I want to turn away from my sin today, and I want to turn to you. If that's you today, I invite you to share this prayer with me. And we don't share this prayer alone, but you share it in community. We always pray together with one another. And I invite you to simply repeat this prayer after me. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross so I could be set free. I give my life completely to you. Jesus, save me from my sin. Make me brand new. Touch my life. Fill me with your spirit so I could know you, serve you, follow you for the rest of my life. My life is not my own. Today I give it to you. Thank you for new life. Now you have mine. In Jesus' name I pray. The ushers will come and they'll release you to the tables.